This is the Master Marketer Show, powered by Proofpoint Marketing. Each week, we explore the mindsets, skill sets, and tool sets the top B2B marketers use to drive results. Gain actionable insights, one masterful, revenue-generating success story at a time. Let's get started. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Master Marketer Show. Today I've got Mark Stuce with me. Mark is a go-to-market expert and currently the founder and CEO of Proof Analytics. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, really looking forward to this conversation. It was good to see you the other, the other month. I, I am as well, and we you and I have chatted a couple of times uh, prior to, and uh I love your point of view. Obviously, it very much relates to the business you're currently running. Uh, and let's just jump right in. One of the main things that I really appreciated when you and I first met was uh, the conversation around what marketing teams and CMOs often miss and get wrong in the B2B space, especially. And the two things we focused on were time lag which you've talked a lot about in your LinkedIn content and opportunity costs, which you know you've talked about a little bit, but maybe not as much. So when we talk about mindsets, I think that's a really core piece that gets missed. I'd love to just kick it over to you and have you expound on that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So um, let's start with time lag. So time lag is a mathematical um, idea, right? Uh, analytical idea. Uh, it, it, it's very much in the, in the vein of a law of gravity, right? So there's not really, you know, when we talk about laws of gravity, it really doesn't matter how you feel about it, right? It, it, it's kind of like it just is. And, you know, you can rail against it all you want to, and it's not going to change anything. Um, so, um, time lag is the idea that there is a, you know, from the time that you do something or some, something does something, a causal, a potential causal thing, causal agent takes a step that that thing that is launched does not have an immediate effect. Now, the, the time lag can be all over the place, depending on what it is we're talking about, right? I mean, there are time lags that are measured in minutes, right? A, a really excellent example of this would be if you've ever fired a gun, you know, the amount of time that the bullet is in flight before it hits the target, that's time lag. During that period of time, the bullet isn't doing anything. You have fired it, right? It's in the air. Right now, it's meaningless. Also, if all of a sudden there's a huge gust of wind, that bullet is probably going to be pushed way off, you know, from where you want to send it. So it is a, it's a, it's a, there are risk aspects to time lag. Uh, there, it's just a, you know, and it's also probably more than any other thing. It's the thing that, makes things difficult to see, right? In terms of cause and effect, right? 
if the if the if if the lag is long enough and, and in B2B marketing it can be quarters, okay? Um, if it's that long, you're not going to see it. You're not going to be able to perceive it. You're going to have to have some sort of analytical helper, okay, to help you say, okay, you know what? That's what this is. So um, this is, I, in fact, right before COVID, uh, I did my last keynote, pre, pre-COVID keynote at, at uh, South by Southwest, and it was on this topic. And it was how time lag is the CMO's greatest enemy because it obscures all the value, right? Um, and people, people generally understand if you get marketers and you get, you get C-suite guys around a table, they'd say, oh, you know, great marketing takes time. And everybody will go, yeah, I, I absolutely totally agree. Non-ironically, right? They will, they will just agree. That's not good enough. That's not, that's not really what we're talking about. You've got to be able to say with some reasonable certainty via a forecast what that time lag is on that particular investment. The way that a, that a CFO is going to look at time lag, by the way, this is not 100% accurate all the time uh, or a good way to look at it all the time, but it makes sense coming from a CFO that he would or she would, right? Um, you're, you're, they look at it as risk, that the longer it takes for, for this investment to pay off, right, the greater the risk that it won't pay off. This is actually one of the reasons why most B2B C-suites do not like to spend a lot of money on brand. Brand is some of the, has some of the longest, most protracted time lags that, that exist anywhere in marketing, right? So you have to really calibrate that. Now we did that at Honeywell and, and, you know, my, my leadership team had a massive uh, negative (laughs) against brand going into it. Right. Um, and so I, I just said, hey, you know, this is what it's all looked like. This is the multivariate piece. These are all the pieces that come together that ultimately do this. But this brand investment, even though it takes a long time for it to start to pay off, once it starts to pay off and you continue to maintain the investment, you know, it's going to provide a huge amount of sustainability to everything else that you are spending and go to market. So it, it, you know, it was not one conversation. Okay. It was a series of conversations, but we, we totally got them over the, over the hump. Right. Um, we did a, you know, we did some POCs, um, you know, and kind of, you know, test marketed it and all this kind of stuff and showed them, you know, that we could predict the, uh, the arc, uh, at which the brand, investment would start to take hold and have an effect on their business. And that, that was generally very, very positively received. So by the time that I left the company, right. I mean, they had a generally very, very different view still, I think a very, 
accountability driven view on a lot of stuff, including brand, but they were, they, they weren't just, in fact, they weren't even close to their former position where they would, you know, historically have just said, you want to do what you want to spend money on brand. Are you insane? Right. They just didn't do that anymore. Well, one of the things you, uh, you mentioned kind of how CFOs would look at it as it's a matter uh, it's a matter of risk. I mean, even some conversations I know that uh, I've had, especially if you look at non-public companies, companies without, you know, major VC investment, bootstrapped, et cetera, they're looking at it as a, there's a cash flow risk there. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Like, and and that's the that's a big one that I consistently see yeah. marketers never even take into consideration. Well, so this gets into the whole it's like does does this plan that you've got even even work with the cash flow? That's right. And this is where you get into the whole issue of opportunity cost, right? So the idea of opportunity cost is I spend my money on this because, you know, that money that I spent it exists only once, right? Um, let's just say that I, that investment is not a good investment. I not only have lost that money on that investment, I have lost what I could have invested in over here, the same money and made potentially a better choice. Right. And that's the opportunity cost on it. And when you get it wrong, you are a two time loser. And there are certain situations where it can get even worse than that, where you're kind of like almost like a three time loser. Um, and in addition to where, where it, it, it certainly is going to hammer your credibility with finance and, and the business in some sort of substantive way. So you can just count on that reality um, on this. And that's why it's so, it's so important. Analytics, analytics really is your way to test drive different ideas and figure out how this is very likely to go. Now it's a probabilistic calculation, right? Because everything's constantly changing and all this kind of stuff, right? So it's probabilistic. It's not deterministic. This is not a prophecy. Okay. So, so let's be very clear about that. But this is, this is, uh, this is why it's so important to, to know. And it's actually today more and more like the last eight, nine months or so, more and more uh, companies are starting to require uh, business cases, right? For, for anything, including marketing and comms and customer success and a business case. If you don't know how to write a really great business case, you need to learn that skill. That is a primary skill going forward in your career. It includes a forecast. You've got to be, and not that's, so this is where we start getting into a lot of subset, you know, kind of the conversations. I'm just going to kind of fly over the top of the whole thing a little bit. Okay. But like sales, when sales issues a forecast, 98% of the time, that's an extrapolation. So that means they took the last four quarters of data they said past is going to be more or less prologue into the next four quarters and things are going to get either a little bit better or a little bit worse. 
right? And they just make a whole bunch of assumptions and they call that a forecast. That is just not even remotely a forecast. Um, you know, a real forecast is, is something that comes out of a multivariable regression model, which looks at the history and all the interactions between all these variables in, the, in history and how did that shake out. And then it says, okay, based on that, these are, here are three forecasts into the future, right? In terms of what we believe is going to happen. Now, the most important thing about this is it's not, it's, it's great to have the forecasts, but it's even more important to renew the forecasts regularly. That is the key to this whole deal, right? This is why people who only renew their forecasts every six months have lost their minds. I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say that it's the truth. Okay. It literally makes no sense at all uh, when you operate it that way. So, um, so that's really the, that's kind of the thing, right? And so this is, this is where there's a lot of stuff that I've just discussed for the last 10 minutes that in B2B marketing and B2B go to market has been nowhere. Uh, it's it's well, so getting ready to be something, it's getting ready to be things. the core, right? Yeah. Yep. So you mentioned two things I'd love to dive uh, dive into. One is business case. You mentioned that if you don't know how to write a, a good business case, that is something you need to do for the sake of your own yeah. career. If you're a, if you're a B2B or I mean, really any go-to-market leader, let's put it that way. Um, what, what does a good business case look like? I know you can't, I don't know if I'm not going to ask you to show an example necessarily, but describe one. What are the pieces that it has to absolutely have? Well, I think it has to lay out the opportunity in front, right? So this is like, you know, this is very similar now to a business plan. If you're doing a startup, you know, and you're, you're looking at your, your TAM and you're taking your first couple stabs at an ICP and you've explained the problem that needs to be solved and you have some ideas about how you want to solve it, what's going to really work. And there's nothing wrong with any of this, by the way. And, and in fact, if, if it were not present, a lot of people would be kind of upset, right? So, but it is in no way the whole deal. So what ultimately makes investors, whether there are outside investors trying to come into your startup or whether they are the CFO deciding how much money he's going to give you in your, you know, your 2024 budget, right? Because uh, they're both investors, trust me. They, the CFO sees himself or herself as an investor. Yeah. They are going to say, okay, give me a historical analysis on how all this work has worked for like the last couple of three years. And what have we gotten? What's been the kind of like the net net ROI, the value creation, all that kind of stuff, cash to cash. What have we seen from all that in the past? 
That's one answer. Then the next step is, okay, let's run a forecast. This is a calculated forecast over which you have minimal control, right? Because it's, it's, it's extrapolating out of the past, but not extrapolating. That's actually the wrong word. It is, it is forecasting out of the past, right? So the, the past was sort of like this. We think it could be like this. And we've included a lot of externalities in the model, right? So these are headwinds and tailwinds that are going to change it up, which by the way, sales forecasts, the extrapolations, extrapolations never have externalities factored in, right? So, so this is where you're kind of like, this, this is where it becomes like a GPS. Actually, not just analogous to, it really is the same math. It's the same idea, right? So you're using your GPS on your phone on a trip, right? It knows where you are and it knows where you've been and it knows a lot of other historical data from a lot of other drivers about, you know, the route that you're on and, and what average times were and, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? And you say, hey, I want to go here. Great. And it gives you three routes to choose from. Most of us, when we do this, we don't really think of it as a forecast, but that's exactly what those routes are. They are forecasts. And they are forecasts that are optimized for slightly different qualities, right? Like there's always one that's the fastest. And then there's one that's maybe a little bit scenic. And then there's a third one that has some other kind of quality to it, right? And and you are you pick one. And you are now you're on that route. You're moving down the route and the GPS is tracking your progress and it's tracking all this other stuff all around you that you cannot see with your eyes uh, that may speed you up or slow you down. And, you know, as as happens a lot, right, at some point, something will have really changed and your GPS will say, hey, Mike. You know, this was a great route, man. And I know it's gorgeous and it's cool and everything else. And it's a lot of fun. But if you need, you know, now, given the accident that's ahead and all this kind of stuff, if we stay here, we're going to be an hour late to your dinner. But if we reroute and go left and right and all this kind of stuff, right, follow that deal, you'll be eight minutes late we suggest that you reroute. This is exactly what happens with uh, regression analytics that it has a lot of automation attached to it. You know, it is, it's going to do all those same things, but for business questions that you have. Um, and so that's, that's the other part of this that's just like super, super important. And so when we built proof, this is not meant to be a proof advertisement, right? But when we built proof, what we saw was 
companies struggle to operationalize analytics into their decision-making processes. And there's a number of reasons for that, right? Current data science, you know, is slow. High, you know, it's high latency. Uh, it's expensive. It's obscure and dense, right? You, you look at a lot of the normal outputs from data science teams and you're like, that is freaking Greek to me. I have no idea what, what am I supposed to do with that, right? Um, scalability is a problem because it's so expensive. So you can't run very many models. Um, it's hard to get to agreement with, between <clears throat> the business user and the data scientist on a model, right? Um, and and I mean, all this stuff is just kind of stupid to be perfectly honest with you. So we set, uh, we, we set out to fix those problems and, and we did. And so uh, today, you know, everything that we're talking about is, is largely solved uh, and we have competitors that are, you know, coming out and all that kind of stuff, which is great, totally validates the space. But it is, uh, those, are, those are huge issues. And given, I mean, we started to see a lot of interest, not just in proof, but in analytics in general during COVID. Because everybody was kind of like, holy crap, you know, I mean, this is like all over the place. I have no idea what's going on. I don't, you know, it's clearly different, but how is it different? And are there, are there, uh, are there things I should not be doing anymore at all? And, uh, you know, I mean, what's the deal? Um, and then the macroeconomic picture turned and that really, that really got everybody focused. One thing I'm curious about is I've seen it in the past where when things turn south, usually some sort of macroeconomic environment and all that, a lot of people turn to analytics. I know in, in the, in the uh, B2C CPG space, at one point it was, you know, customer 360. That was the, that was the thing that was going to solve everybody's problem. And, uh, you know, there, there are other examples. Do you think, why do you think this one's different? Well, <laughs> I think it's different because, you know, like if you look at regression models, like in the R library and stuff like that, right? This is, this is, uh, regression is, 80% of the world's questions are answered by regression. You know, that's a, that's a data science uh, point of view right there. Uh, regression has been around centuries. There's, there's even one part of a regression algorithm that was written by Aristotle that has been improved a little bit here and there but it's still recognizably, you put it up against the original uh, piece, piece of uh, math by Aristotle, it's very close, right? So it hasn't changed that much. So you wanna talk about something that's proven? I mean, this is the math that's used to study climate change. This is the math that's used to, to study epidemiology and 
anything that has a lot of moving parts, a lot of time lag, a lot of complexity, right? That's what this is. Um, Procter & Gamble about 40 years ago, so in the overall scheme of things, very recently, um, said, you know what, we are going to use, they called it econometrics at the time. Um, we're going to use this to better understand marketing's impact on our business. And it became part of the warp and woof of their business and many other CPG companies and retail companies over the years and has, it's now the backbone of it. Right. And it's, and you know, it's funny because these being consumer brands, we think of them as creative brands, creative centric brands, and they certainly are, but the amount of research and analytics that, that accompanies the creativity, is immense. And so let's just kind of go there for a second. Okay. So you look at the, you know, at a product level, uh, inside of Procter and Gamble, who runs the show? It's Mark. It's the head marketer, right? They either have the real or the de facto P and L. Who has control over all four P's in that business? It's the marketer. There's not, there's not a business GM. The marketer is the business GM. So they're talking about product changes. They're talking about pricing. They're talking about placement. They're talking about promotion. Now let's flip over to B2B for a second. I mean, I, I know for a fact somewhere, just statistically, okay, there's a B2B CMO that has control over all four Ps. Is that person in any way, shape, or form representative of the whole? No. They're not, right? Most B2B CMOs control two Ps, promotion and placement. And they're not allowed in the room a lot of times to discuss product or to discuss pricing. And the reason for that is that they're seen as not having the skill sets and not having the analytical perspective, not having the financial perspective in order to pull that off. So I was going to ask you, sorry to interrupt. Do you think that assumption is valid where they yes, don't have those valid. skill sets or <coughs> uh, it gives me no pleasure to say that, but it is absolutely valid. Um, most senior marketers in B2B are what recruiters would call I-shaped, right? It's all about uh, their specialization in, in marketing and their, you know, sub sub specialization in some cases. Um, the they don't have much of a horizontal uh, component to make them a T shape because now that's the contextual information that's becoming really. Uh, schooled as a business leader, uh, which then ultimately changes your perspective on your specialization. It's not that you stop 
caring about your specialization and you're some sort of sellout, right? That That is a completely, that's just a spurious piece of bullshit is really what it is, okay? Um, this is, what I'm talking about is somebody who says, you know what, um, we need, we have this problem that we have to solve and I'm coming at it in every way as a business leader first. And I'm going to find a, I'm going to find a solution and I, and I'm going to see what my area of, of expertise has to contribute to that. But I'm also really interested in what everybody else has to say about it too. Um, you start to really understand that there is no silver bullet. So like, you know, I mean, I was part of this debate. I was actually more of a spectator uh, than anything else after a while because it was a crazy debate. It really was on, on, uh, on LinkedIn between all these individuals who were highly partisan around the different, you know, fill in the blank led programs, right? PLG, right? Or community led growth or, you know, whatever, right? I mean, and, and there's like, they all came out in full force on this particular thread. And there's not anything wrong with any of those things. But the idea that they somehow can be the silver bullet, that they can take a business that's not maybe seeing it what it wants to see and suddenly catapult it into, you know, the latest, hottest thing on the back of one of those choices alone. I mean, it's just, it's a fantasy, right? It's a complete, it's a complete misread, complete misunderstanding on the way things actually work. So one of the things that you, you learn to love about analytics, right? Is analytics or kissing cousin to physics. And what is physics? Physics is a description of how the world works, usually in math, right? And so you're like sitting there going, as you, as you start to get exposed more and more to analytical outcomes and you start to see how things really work, you get disabused of a lot of what you thought you knew, which is also a huge issue inside of B2B. People will say, oh, but I've seen it work. No, you haven't, right? The time lag alone ensures that you haven't seen it work. So, I mean, can we just like, kind of like cut, cut to the chase here? You know, I mean, that's not the way it works. There are laws of gravity that you cannot just decide to step aside, right? The last little point I'd make on this is that uh, this is going to be controversial, probably uh, depending on who's listening. But in B2B, there, was, there were no intellectual underpinnings in B2B marketing. So let's just say that we're talking about last 15 to 20 years. There was, there was no intellectual underpinnings 
where there really was in B2C. B2C marketers knew about the laws of gravity that really mattered, okay? And they, they didn't try and buck those systems. Um, but then you had venture capital come into the mix with the very specific goals and objectives that VC has for its money, which is extremely rapid growth at all costs, right? Going for the hockey stick, right? And breaking all of what had been considered to be the normal rules of success uh, around profitability, around, you know, all kinds of stuff, right? And so marketers and sales guys started to respond to those pressures in very unhealthy ways. So the stack, MarTech stack, sales stacks, we're all about economy of scale. Got to do more, got to do more, got to do more, got to touch more, got to got to convince more, got to just overwhelm them. Even if they hate our guts at the end, they're just going to buy anyway because we've just like drowned them and stuff, right? I mean, where do you think that the EU legislation uh, on privacy came from? This was an area of legislation that had been around since the 50s, but it was so moribund that it had like three meters of dust on top of it, right? And marketers knocked all that dust off and generated what we have today and what we continue to have today. And that's in the words of the EU, right? So that's not just me deciding that these things are probably linked. That's what the EU itself has said, reactivated their interest. So, I mean, we're now at a point where nobody trusts, there's huge trust and confidence issues between the business and go to market. And it's not limited to marketing, by the way, they just trust the living heck out of the sales teams too. They may have really great confidence huh? that the sales leaders will make their number, but they will have no trust in how it gets done. The flip is true. I'm getting this That's straight out of the, the interviews I'm doing with CEOs and CFOs for my book, right? Um, the, the reverse is true on marketing, right? They, they, they actually have a great deal of trust in marketing. They believe that marketers would never do anything to expose the company to ridicule, to scandal, that they really care, you know, that they're trying to do the best thing, you know, all this kind of stuff. And they have no confidence at all that marketers in B2B companies know what the heck is go really going on. And like, how do they know that they're having an impact? Now that the reality is, is that B2B marketers are having an impact. I mean, I can, I can tell you this authoritatively, maybe better than most people alive today in the space just because of what we do uh, at Proof. But there is a, um, so like uh, finance guys, finance guys get what we do. And you can just tell that when the decision is made to license Proof, they're so excited and they've got 
blood in their eyes, right? I mean, they're, they're just can't wait to put the screws to marketing, right? And you can tell that marketers are kind of a little shaky, a little uncertain about what's getting ready to happen. Uh, the analytics start coming out, right? Um, and, you know, guys, I mean, hey, there's a reason why the 80-20 rule exists, okay? Uh, generally speaking, around, you know, anywhere from about 20 to 30% of marketing spend is underperforming or non-performing. But finance is expecting it to be like 70% non-performing, right? So they're kind of a little bit nonplussed, right? All of a sudden we've taken some of their fun out of the equation and the marketers are like, yeah, see, you know, um, we're doing the right things. We just couldn't prove it. Well, that's true, right? But now you can, and now you can immediately say, oh, okay, that 25% of wasted money, we're going to cease and desist the way that we're spending that money. And we're going to put that money elsewhere where it makes sense. And we're going to keep it optimized. And we're going to keep going, right? And so all of a sudden, your wastage levels are down in the sub three-point range. And again, you can, you can improve that substantially by just increasing the latency or, excuse me, increasing the speed, lowering the latency, right, of, of, uh, of your recalc. Now, at some point, it becomes kind of a ridiculous exercise to keep trying to squeeze the penny and squeeze the penny, right? But, um, but yeah, I mean that's that's the that's the deal, right? And so, like you're the if you're a communicator listening to this show, you have the you have a huge story, a hugely positive story in the analytics because nothing. Uh, does more for the back half of the customer journey than earned channels. Channels that are perceived or actually are not controlled by the vendor. Why is that? Because during that whole period of time, the vendor is saying, hey, you know, um, I got all the information on the owned and paid portions of, of the vendor's stuff. I also know that, you know, a lot of that is propaganda. I'm now in the due diligence risk mitigation phase of the deal, right? And so actually one of the things that I am de-risking is all that crap that I got from the paid and owned channels. How true is it, right? So that's why they disengage yep. almost entirely from your paid and owned at that point. And they only care about earned to include peer to peer. Right. And, and that is a, that's a, that's a huge thing. And that's where that's, that's where you just can't get any better than comms or, you know, PR, you know, whatever. I mean, it's, it, it's just a, a even today in most business mm -hmm. or, or channel type publications, they are, you know, those articles are still very trusted. No, and I think this is where tying it back to some of the things you said early on, which is, you know, blank leg growth, which is interesting to me to hear because, again, we, our whole 
premise as relationship-led growth, but we think about it more as a mindset rather than a specific set of tactics per se. Um, and where this ties back to it is on the PR side, that's where, you know, community starts coming into play. That's where podcasts and, you know, guest, uh, guest blogging, guest podcasts come into play. All these, again, like you said, earned things come into play because at the end of the day, when you're building the relationship, people are going to get skeptical at some point and they're going to be questioning what you have to say at some point. It's inevitable. Whether right. that's early on, whether that's later on, or even post sale, which is also yeah, by actually, way, I, most people forget. Totally, and I, and I think it's the biggest challenge that startups have, right? Because they have not been around long enough to build up their own cache of awareness, confidence, and trust, right? And so everyone's always going to be doing the DD on them even harder than they are on mm -hmm. IBM. Yep. A hundred percent. So uh, one of the things I want to, I want to go back to um, that you were mentioning is, you know, the, the skill sets involved, right. And similar to you, you know, when, whenever somebody early on in the industry comes to me and asks, Hey, what, what, what are the things that, you look for what are the things that I as a marketer should be doing? I'm like, business concepts, data concepts. Those two things are your going to be your saving grace both early and later. Because, yeah, you need to learn marketing, but you have to know those other things. You have to be able to um, be an actual business leader, not just a marketing leader. So what, if we can dive into yeah, that a little sure. bit more. What specifically can marketing leaders be doing to improve on those? Okay. Two? So I think that, the, I mean, again, you know, the world is not a homogenous group, right? So there's going to, there's all kinds of people, right? But the list is not going to be a welcome list for a, a lot of people, right? You know, uh, I knew somebody who, who said that he felt like that, you know, this is 20 years ago, but he felt like that most marketers went into marketing because <clears throat> they weren't any good in high school math. Right. They were kind of running away from it. So, you know, the, the, the world has a way of playing a big joke on us, <laughs> all of us, all of us, uh, in some way. And it usually revolves around that, which we thought we had escaped from is now brought back, uh, uh, you know, and put straight into our face. That's kind of the thing that's going on here. So, you know, when I was a CMO at Honeywell, one of the things that we did, and we, we did it at BMC software too, was we said to everybody in, in marketing, wherever you are in the world, we want you to go to your local university and take a finance for non-financial managers class. And if you want to take it for credit, right, we'll totally pay for it. Uh, if you want to audit it for free, that's fine too. You're going to take it three times over a course of a year. Because what we found was, is that you really had, they, it, it, it made a big difference. 
to dip them back into that class two more times. Uh, they kind of came out of it with a lot of the material kind of really cr cr permanently crystallized in the way that they thought and acted. Um, and that was super important. So this was mainly, this was, we weren't trying to turn our marketers into little mini CMOs or, C or CFOs, right? This was about really, this is a language class, right? This was, hey, we want you to learn how to speak business. And when it's being spoken to you, we want you to be able to understand it. So, you know, like I would, I, I didn't do it with everybody, but I would kind of like, you know, uh, have a random selection done and I would hand them a financial statement, you know, not like something ridiculous, but, but representative. Uh, uh, and I'd say, Hey, take this financial statement and, you know, go over to your, your office or cube or whatever, right. Uh, take the evening and come back and be prepared to tell me the story of what you read there. That was really super important. Um, we also, you know, every time the sales organization put on a big, um, sales onboarding week for a new class of sales, sales people, uh, we would buy seats uh, from them, uh, and send marketers and, and PR people. And they would, get, they would literally be treated like everybody else. And they would go through the entire week. Uh, which is an offsite, a hotel, you know, and brutal. I mean, it's brutal. It's not for the faint of heart. But we did it because if you really get great sales skills, it doesn't matter whether you ever carry a bag. Be incredibly valuable to you in any part of life. Um, it also built a lot of empathy. Uh, for the life of a sales guy, what was really going on there, you know, uh, and then built a lot of relationships, you know, and, and being able to reach out in a particular moment to a particular sales guy and say, hey, really need your help, need a reference, need a, you know, whatever, right? Uh, what can I do for you in return? That kind of stuff is solid gold, right? So, we were constantly doing things like that. And so I think that you, A, have to really start to really grasp the business. You have to know how your business actually makes its money. Because the odds are high if you are in a business with multiple products that some products are far more profitable than other products and that some products are far more uh, interesting to the marketplace than other products. So some of them are going to generate growth, top line growth disproportionately, but probably not much in the way of profits. Some are got are going to be steady eddy type thing, very high profit. Right. And so the way you market uh, in those two situations, totally different. The way that you allocate resources to market those two situations, totally different. 
the, the measurements that you put into models, some of them are going to be the same and some of them are going to be different because you're trying to solve for really two separate kinds of business growth problems. Um, so that's, that's just going to absolutely be key. I mean, you know, and if you want to kind of see what this looks like in retrospect, just look at your average run of the mill enterprise IT organization, you know, after Y2K, you know, that's, that's the changeover from 99 to 2000, right. And companies spent gazillion billion dollars to prepare for that. And it turned out to be kind of like a whole lot of nothing after that. CIOs went from being king of the hill to being demoted, not just reporting to the CFO, but probably reporting to somebody who reported to the CFO. That wasn't really about the, the finance saying, well, you know, we're, we're going to tell you guys how to be technologists. That's not what it was, right? It was, we are going to give you a new culture. We're going to give you a new perspective. And at the end of the day, we want technology leaders that are business leaders first, technology leaders second. Um, and that's what they got. 20 years later, that's pretty much if you're a successful CIO, that's exactly where you are. This is repeating uh, right now with data science teams, CDOs, right? They, they over-rotated on data management systems for the last five to seven years. Um, things went to hell, you know, in the macro in the past year, business leaders started to say, hey, you need your help, need, need insights to make better decisions. A lot of teams said, nah, we're not ready to do that yet. We're still working on the whole supply chain piece of data. And the businesses are like, uh, that's not acceptable. So what does that mean? It means that uh, in a tried and true model, a lot of those DS teams are being pulled under finance. And again, it's not because finance wants to own DNS, right? It's because um, they feel like that the big problem with data science teams is that they are all about the data science and not about the business at all. So then that's, they're going to fix that. So this is all happening. It's, I know for a lot of marketers, it feels like it's all on you. It sort of is from one perspective, because guess what? You spend a lot more money pro rata than anybody else in the business. Usually that's true. Uh, and so, yeah, they care a lot about marketing from that perspective, but you should too. If it was your money being spent, I guarantee you, you would care a lot more. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to talk to uh, marketers who are also founders and are running an organization because they talk about it and think about it very differently all of a sudden. That's right. Yeah, I know it, it, it um, can get very personal. <laughs> yep. Yep. Couple of uh, one follow up, and then I have a tangential question for you. So, the follow up is, you know, the you, well, you described the the things that you you all did at Honeywell. I think is 
really awesome and interesting. How do you think a SMB or a smaller, maybe midsize, founder-led, you know, bootstrapped organization can? What can they do to do this? Because again, there are a number of organizations that might hear this and go, that's great, but I can't afford to pay for 200 people or whatever, 50, my, my 50 person marketing staff to go to and take courses three times a year at their university or whatnot. Well, so on that one, I would, I, I would actually really disagree because most of those classes are available for free audit, right? So they can just walk in and sit down and start listening. Right. Plus, in this day and age, okay, you could find most of that in a video form on YouTube. So, I, uh, I just don't. I guess I, I don't see that as a big deal. Right. Uh, another thing you see from small and mid-sized businesses is, well, I just don't have the data. And mm -hmm. and that's and that's that's a fair statement. Okay, except. We are living in the golden age of data by subscription. Data of all kinds, including specifically about your business, right? Um, is being tracked and sold on spec, right? So, yeah, there are a lot of things, by the way, that ought to concern us about that, okay? But, but let's just... Put that aside for a second. Uh, so you can, even if you don't have the stacks yet to collect a lot of relevant data, you can still buy it and it's not expensive. And plus what you're trying to solve for here is all about the questions that you want to ask. So let's just say that there is no data at all about your business the performance of your business is too new, too small, whatever, right? But there's a lot, you have competitors, right? Probably some of which have been around for a while. So there is gonna be data there, right? There's macroeconomic data that you can pull. Again, most of that's for free. Um, there's a lot of things that you can bring together to begin to learn valuable things and make better decisions Right. This is not like people, people tend to think about analytics as like all in or not at all. Right. And that's just not the way it works. Right. I mean, it's sort of like going to school. Would you ever say that about going to school? No, I don't, you, I don't think you would. Right. Because you understand that school is an iterative thing, right? You're learning new things every day. It's not like you go there one day and you get it all in a shot, you know, and you spend the next nine months trying to figure it all out. That's not the way it works. So it doesn't work in analytics that way either. So you can take analytics very much as it comes and the value and the insights that you get from it are going to be the things that encourage you to take the next step. That, well, so that end, there is going to be a lot of pressure on you for accountability. So that's like the teacher, the role of the teacher at school, right? 
So there's going to be a CFO that's going to go, uh, you know, I think it's awesome that you're so, you know, self-motivated around this and all that kind of stuff, but I still want my, my reports, right? Yep. So I'm, I'm curious if we can play out a, a hypothetical because I, I can, I can definitely relate to, I know you and I have, have talked about this. Well, I don't have the data. I don't have enough data uh, problem. Mm -hmm. And I know there are a lot of folks listening. They're probably going, well, yeah, I don't, I don't have the data. I don't know where to get it. So um, yeah, I, I'm going to put this in front of you. Let, let me know if this is something we can even do or, or not. But um, say you're, you are the head of a, in mid-sized consulting firm. And I'm, I'm going to use examples of from our business because these are the types of companies we, we deal with a lot. And a lot of the time when we start these conversations, we're like, well, let us get access to your CRM. The first thing we hear is, well, we can give it to you, but there's really not much in there because we haven't really tracked anything appropriately and this, that, and the other. Some of the deal, most deals aren't in there. And if they are, they were entered too late, you know, whatever, this kind of stuff. And we there's no connection to source data or anything like that. That's like a... Probably 95% of the time is something we hear. So if you're the leader, of head, head marketer in that organization, what would you do? Like, how would you approach that situation? Where would you get the data? Or what, what examples, like, where, where would you try to look? And what types of data would you try to pull in? Well, so number one, I would, you know, if, if there just wasn't any data in the CRM, I think that I would have to say, to the C-suite, guys, we have a big problem. And if we do not solve it, it will be an even bigger problem a year from now and two years from now and three years from now, right? Mm -hmm. There's no data in the CRM. And clearly my analytics aside for a second, this is bad. Like, to be perfectly honest with you today, the way that most uh, CEOs and CFOs are seeing this kind of issue is that it, it denotes rank incompetence. May not be rank incompetence in this case, you know, on marketing, right? It could be on the sales guys, right? But people are going to get their butts kicked on this kind of situation. At uh, a large company that I was at, uh, this is a little bit different take on the same question, right? Uh, I, uh, uh, I was just denied access to a data set to, well, more than a data set. It was small database and, uh, and it had really important data in it. And so I just said in the, in the next, uh, C-suite meeting, I just said, Hey guys, um, I really need your help because, you know, you, you guys all know that I'm, I'm here for a lot of reasons. And one of them is to make this whole analytical thing really work for us. And I need access to data. And that person right there is not giving me access to data. In fact, he's refusing access. So if that's okay with you, you just need to understand what the business ramifications are. And if that's not okay with you, then please let him know that you want him to do something differently. Was it a total 
like radical call out. Yeah, it was. He totally deserved it. He merited it. He'd been such a difficult human being uh, about it. But boy, did I have access to that data within 24 hours? You bet I did. I probably had it within five, right? So, you know, it, it was, you know, I mean, you just got to, um, people love accountability when they're not being held accountable, when somebody else is stubbed the toe, right? Um, and, uh, and, but sooner or later, we will all be in the catbird seat, right? We will all be held accountable. Um, so it, it is, it's just, you know, do your best, stand up for what is true, get what you need. If something is a systemic failure and your scenario about, Hey, there's no data in the CRM. That's a pretty systemic failure. That is a, I mean, everything else aside for a second, that just cannot be allowed to continue. It just, uh, the, the company. Yep is losing very real value when sales guys don't fill in all the proper fields in the CRM. It, it, my personal view is that it should absolutely be a terminatable offense. Not like, not like right the first one, but if you do it three times, okay, then basically you're just giving the, the, your employer a giant middle finger and they need to cut it off and send you out the door, right? I mean, that's the way I look at it. So, I, I mean, I, I can't say I disagree with anything, with anything you just said uh, at all. What about a situation where, let's say, there is data in the CRM, but it's low volume? Sure. Meaning, let's say they're working you know, 100 deals a year. Right. And it's maybe a couple of deals a month at that point that are going through pipeline because these are, again, I'm giving you an example of the types of business we often work with. I know you, I think you and I have even maybe had this conversation initially, right? It's high ACV consulting, you know, you're looking at somewhere 50 to $100 million annualized kind of deal. Like they're, they're selling really large engagement projects, that kind of deal. Um, not a giant, uh, pipeline per se from a volume perspective what do you do what kind of like how does that work in uh the mmm space in in what sense in sense of is there a minimum data requirement because that that's often a a pushback and i i mean i personally thought that way too. I think you've kind of changed my mind on it, but I'm, I'm, I, I, I want you to say it to the, to everybody else listening. Like what, what's the minimum amount of data that somebody needs and what kind of data are we talking about to start proving out? Okay. So the work. way that this really operates, okay. <clears throat> is that you reverse engineer into the, the data. The data is the thing that you consider last, <clears throat> not first. Okay. So when we onboard uh, customers, the first conversation, usually in a fairly organized, you know, boardroom kind of environment, right, is, hey, what do you want to know? Like, what are the top 20 questions, 50 questions, whatever, okay, that are burning a hole in your pocket that are keeping you up late at night? 
So you get those memorialized. That's typically not a difficult part of the exercise because particularly the business leaders can rattle them off. Um, each one of those questions suggests a, a type of model, an algorithmic approach. Um, cause there's, I mean, this is the other thing that probably most people don't really realize, but there's not a whole lot of different kinds of questions to, uh, to be, to be asking the, the differences are all in the customization uh, of those questions, not in the core questions. So, uh, so you kind of say, okay, we're now going to build what's called a model framework. Model framework is essentially, here's the question, here's the model type that we'll probably be working with. And then there's a punch list of all the data types that are going to be necessary to have in order to arm that model and get a good answer. 60% or so of those uh, data types are things that you do not control. It's the wave. You don't control the wave. You're trying to surf the wave. You do not have any say about the wave, right? So you really need to really understand what are the what are the factors out there in the world, okay, that that speed stuff up, slow it down, create problems, remove problems, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, what do we need to realistically factor into these models from that standpoint? The 30% is, and these are rough percentages, okay, but the 30% is what are we doing that in the context of the 60 or 70% uh, is, is seeking to be successful in that context against a particular outcome. So you have to know your outcome. That's, that's what's, uh, what a data scientist would call a dependent variable, right? Um, all these other things on the other side, these are all independent variables. Whether you control them or not, they're independent. Um, they're, you're going to line them all up. You're going to drag and drop all that stuff into the model. It is, by the way, a drag and drop process um, in the tool. And you're off to the races, right? Now, will you continue to iterate the model? Will you continue to work on, you know, we, we have a concept it's very much an agile uh, approach around the minimum viable model, right? Because we want to get to a place of value between the data science guy and the internal business guy. So the business guy says, yeah, you know what? That is starting to answer my question. And we can continue to tweak it and we can add some more data sets, you know, and all that kind of stuff to kind of give more clarity in certain areas and whatnot. But that's going to be the essence of the model. So that actually, there's an interesting thing that you mentioned in a prior conversation you and I had, which gets at confidence interval, where I know as, as marketers, we're, we're, all, we're kind of taught, if you will, and a lot of folks are going, okay, I need, I need that 90 to 95% confidence interval. 
Talk about your opinion on that. I'm sorry, the the 99? The, the confidence interval. And, you know, as, as marketers, oftentimes we're... Oh, right. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're taught that, you know, 90, 95% confidence. That's what we want to see before we make a decision. Yeah. So a data, so the data science culture, okay, is a culture of precision. And that is sort of exemplified in most people's minds up to and including data scientists by the idea of the 95% confidence score. And what they will tell you is, is that anything that's much below 95 or certainly 90 isn't worth even caring about. If you are dealing with the physical sciences, the hard sciences, right? There's a lot of truth to that statement. However, as soon as you bring human behavior into human behavior data, into the mix, which by the way, everything we're talking about is almost entirely human behavior data. You're going to be lucky to get to 50. And so when you see your data science teams always turning in stuff in the 95% range on business stuff, they have been overfitting the model in order to get to that score which means they've introduced mathematical bias into that model. And, and the model is not necessarily reliable anymore. So this is a, even though they know all this and they know better, what this really is, is they are so heavily acculturated to the 95% number that they just can't let it go. They can't see that there is a there are legitimate situations where it's not it's not only not relevant it's not even possible. So, you had a good story about that if I remember about your work. I think it was at Honeywell. Yeah, no, I mean my so my CEO uh, Dave Cody at the time uh, heard that I was spending a lot of money trying to climb to 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 climb that ladder. Right. I wanted my all of my models to have much higher than 50 or 60 confidence scores. I wanted to be up as high as I could get. Right. And it was I was spending a lot of money. I mean, we're talking about like. Seven figures uh, to do this. And. He called me in and he he basically said, Mark. I love you, man. You're doing great work, but this is crap. And and if I hear that you're continuing to do this after this call, this conversation, I'm just going to fire you. It'll be a great loss to Honeywell, but I just you know that's just a that's just dumb, right? Well, I mean, you know, I mean that that you want to talk about an impression that that made an impression. Um, and then we also, a fascinating kind of point two to that was, he said, I'll tell you what, he goes, what we really need is really low latency analytics that will, he said, because, you know, we, we're aware, we've been doing this a long time, we're aware of the fact that most of the decisions that we make for Honeywell, if they were modeled after the fact, okay, would probably be in the 20s somewhere. 
And we would love to make better than 20 on a decision. So what we really need to do that is not a big high accuracy mega model. What we really need is a much smaller, low latency, very fast updated model. Um, because that's how we can engage, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of, of, uh, of being able to uh, use compounding, right? The whole issue was really about, they, they are trying to say, hey, if I can make a decision every day, same, the same decision every day, and, I, and every day I can make it a half a percent better than the day before. And I do that every day for 365 days. My annual improvement will be about 2,000%, a little less than that. So, which is huge. So he was like, that's what we care about. That's what we really want. And that was a, that was a seminal moment in my evolution as this kind of the CMO with a heavy, heavy foot in data science, right? Um, but not really a data scientist, but with a very strong perspective on data science. And I can, I can sit there and I can talk to them as one of them, okay? But it's still not the same. I don't have the degrees that they have, right? So, that was a very illuminating thing, right? So we started actually building models to support exactly that. Uh, and that's where proof ultimately came from. So the accuracy in proof is the same as anything else because it's the same algorithm. The, the way that it is used, the size of the models that are created are smaller and faster. And so that changes it substantially. The, the models can also be federated very easily together if you needed a larger, more explanatory model of something bigger, right? You could do that very easily, right? Um, so that was, that was really what that was all, that was all about, right? Mm -hmm. Was, hey, you know what? Not really interested in your whole cult of precision thing at all. And I think that that is actually, that message is, is front and center with CDOs that I talk to, you know, and there's a lot of CDO communities on LinkedIn. It's that, that, that subject is all over the place. That basically we've been trying, we've been trying to do research data science in a, in a world that doesn't, that's not what they want, like at all. Now, in terms of, I don't, I also don't want it, the, your core question to get lost. How much data do I need? Okay. Generally speaking, you need a right around 180 observations. These are time series data sets, right? This is small data, not, not big data that you're, that you're after. Um, and you, so this could be, 
And to clarify really quick, when you say 180 observations, that's within each data set. Yes, it's within each data set. Now, what immediately goes into the mind of a lot of marketers is, oh man, that means I got to have 180 months of data. I don't, I mean, there's no way, right? Well, I'm not talking about your reporting cadence, okay? And you're not just measuring something one time a month on the 31st of the month, right? You are measuring it probably daily. Um, if you're in retail, it's going to be a lot more frequently than that. Um, and you are, then you're, you're going to kind of roll it all up and you're going to give a, a representative number for June or for July or for August or whatever. Right. But what we're talking about is the primary data. So not the single data set that you use to represent June, but the 30 data sets that underlie that number in June. So at that point now we're talking about several months of data, right? Um, I'm just gonna give you a, a little bit of a, a cautionary note on this too at the end. If uh, what we're seeing right now like I just saw this uh, right before the 4th of July. Uh, it became super apparent that uh, this one team didn't have the data. And they were supposed to have the data, but they just never got around to it. Wasn't a priority. Nobody really checked up on them for years, actually. Um and so when all of a sudden they had to deliver the data and there wasn't any data to deliver, that was seen as major malfeasance, major incompetence. And the top three people were fired that same day. And I'm sure, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm, I'm sure that those three people were doing a really good job in other areas, right? But the point is, is that businesses are, are getting super, super draconian uh, on that issue. So just something to kind of now you got to you, you're going to have to get really serious about it, too. Mm -hmm. 100%. So if we can take that maybe a, a step further in terms of this minimum viable model and the data required if you're looking if you're if a core data set is pipeline because again you're asking you're saying like well, what's the core question one of the core ones that you know every ceo generally wants to know about their marketing is okay we're doing whatever, these 15 things we're in these x number of channels we're doing a podcast we're doing this other thing and this other thing how is this actually impacting my top how is what is actually what of this investment is impacting pipeline? Yeah, so so actually you would break it down, right? So, let, okay, so let's briefly define marketing's mission in B2B. B2B marketing exists 
to help B2B sales sell more product to more customers. That's top line growth. Faster, that's improvement of, of uh, cash flow from revenue. And more profitably, that's margin. And now comes the key phrase. Than sales could do by itself. So then the big question becomes, to what extent is that happening? Right? Is the money that we're spending on the marketing multiplier actually multiplying our success at the sales level? Revenue, margin, cash flow. Um, and so what you, you'll tend to break these out, right? So you'll do a model on revenue, a model on on uh, cash flow and one on margin. You'll, you'll achieve a, a, uh, a universe of externalities that represent the things that are, you feel like are most important to your performance over which you have no control. And then you're going to say, okay, here are all the investments that we're making right now across marketing and communications and sales and uh, customer success, right? And we're going to put all that into the model. And the model is going to start generating a stack rank in terms of the strength of the relationships between each of those investments and the outcome the time lag for each one. Um, it's, well, it's going to be mainly those two things. I mean, there's some other little, little mm -hmm. details, right? But it's, it's hugely those two things. And then it's going to give you a forecast on what you can uh, count on going forward. And then every time, so let's just say that you're measuring stuff once a week. So every time new data from that week is presented to the models through an API, there's also a flat file upload if you want to do it that way. Um, it's going to automatically recompute the models. And it's, it's so in the sense that it operates exactly like a GPS on the screen. It's going to show you kind of what's going on. Whoa, you know, we, we have this forecast but the actuals are not are drifting away from the forecast. Why is that? Well, if you've got the right externalities tracked in the, in the uh, model, it'll tell you. Okay, so now we need to get back on track, right? So you right there on the screen, you war game up four scenarios of how you would get back on track and you decide on the one that you like the best so this should seem very familiar to anybody who's used a GPS, right? Um, and you lock it in and you go for it. So that, that's... I, lo I love that you brought up the um, that last bit, which is about that it's doing it better than sales can do by itself. That control is, again, one, one common thing that I at least often see missed. 
when uh yeah so let's talk about this for a second right because this is not about you know some sort of indentured servitude on the part of marketing with sales okay this like pretty much everything else okay is a mathematical relationship sales is a linear function it operates on a linear function what that means in this case is that if the cro gets a higher quota he or she is going to say okay they're going to divide their current sales team into that new quota it's probably going to be the individual quota is going to be way too high. So they're going to have to, they're going to say, Oh, I got to hire another 40, 50 sales guys. Right. And then I got to probably go up to about 70 or 80. Cause we're going to have some crap ones and they're going to trip and you know, all this kind of stuff. And I still have to make my number. What does that mean? That means that your cost of sales pretty much mirrors on a pro rata basis, the increase in revenue, right? You are having to pay a very, let's call it standardized uh, cost per additional rep, per additional deal, right? You're, you, you're not gonna get you know, you're not going to get twice the amount of deals out of the same sales force that you had before. It's just not happening. That might change, by the way, uh, in the next, say, 10 years, but uh, for a lot of reasons, but that's not the way it is right now. Marketing, on the other hand, is nonlinear in so many ways. It is nonlinear. But it is nonlinear from an economic perspective because that same increase in quota doesn't necessarily drive any increase or decrease in marketing spend. So this is where actually marketing becomes pro rata much more and more and more efficient, right? versus sales. It brings more and more leverage, hence the idea of the multiplier. The other thing is that's super important is that marketing is one of about three functions in any major corporation that delivers that multiplier value well beyond any one function like sales. So it is same dollars, spent on sales is also helping recruiters recruit faster, better people, all that kind of stuff, right? It's yep. retention, same deal, right? I mean, you just keep on going, right? I mean, there's this, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. they're a little more esoteric and a little less well-known, but I have yet to sit down with the head of a function in a corporation, no matter how arcane the business of that function is, where they don't say, yeah, marketing really helps me in the following ways, okay? So let's just say that if, you know, one of the greatest and most terrible ironies of the current dysfunction between marketing and the business is that if there's one area of the business based purely on the numbers, purely on the contributions, 
that shouldn't have to take any guff from anybody about value creation and ROI. It should be marketing. When I point this out to CEOs and CFOs, they get a little uh, quiet or they get a little agitated. Both are perfectly legitimate responses, right? Because I'm giving them something that's very uncomfortable and it's very factual and they can't just blow it off. And then, but then their next point is, yeah, but we would need the analytics in order to be able to make that real. And I say, yeah. They're like, well, we don't feel like our marketing sales teams, any of those guys have those skills. So we could be waiting around quite a long time waiting for them to get their act together. And I said, yeah, that's, that's true. That's a big, that's a big problem. Invariably they said, well, okay, so what would you do? I'd say, put, uh, take all that stuff, particularly since you're already doing it horizontally with data science. Okay. Put all that stuff under FPNA. I said, a lot of the tools proof is a great example of this, you know, heavy duty, in-app collaboration, totally enabled, okay? I said, so why don't you sit down with FP&A, say, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna start putting these analytics into place, right? Uh, we obviously need the collaboration of marketing and PR and sales and all the rest of them, right? But we are going to be doing the, the heavy lift from a skill set perspective. Um, and we're going to be generating the outcomes and sharing them transparently in the, in the tool with anybody and everybody who wants to see them. And I'm like, that makes all the sense in the world, man. That's exactly the way I would do it. And if you ever want to kind of revert back into a function owned kind of more closed loop kind of thing, just make sure that they have the skills. So, I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, it's, it's actually, it's very straightforward and very not painful, particularly if your point of comparison is getting fired, which is way more painful. If I were a CMO and I was not me, the way I currently exist, okay, I would be asking my CFO to take it over. Even if it meant that I had to give up 10%, 20% of my budget, right, to, to uh, fund it, fund him or her doing it for me, I would totally do it. 110%. Shortest distance between two points. No more lost time. You know, let's get going. Love it. That's, uh, it's a conversation that I think is also 
often missed, which is, you know, when you start talking budgeting and things like that, there's always, everyone's always fighting over budget and marketing, I think, especially for a variety of reasons, a lot of which we've talked about, right? It's, well, no, I, I got to spend it. Otherwise I lose it. And I think that mentality is just so ridiculously wrong when you look at the broader picture of the business, right? Like if you can find, if you're a CMO and you can find that 20% that isn't working and you don't, let's just say you don't have a better place to put it. Or if based on your business strategy, the better place to spend that 20% is an R&D, then give it over to R&D. So we actually did that. But how? Yeah, we but that almost never happened, Honeywell. They were so shocked. We we offered to give them back ten million dollars because we just felt like that that on a fully optimized calculation, given where things appeared to be and where they appeared to be going, that we would be way past the point of overspending, right? If we spent it all. And so we, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I mean, it wasn't just my decision, but I was obviously the spokesperson in this meeting. So I just said, Hey, yeah, you know, we have about $10 million that we think is uh, supernumerary to our needs. And, and we're, we're good. We, we'd like to give it back to the business. The CFO literally did not know what to do with that. I had to then take him through all the analytics again to essentially reassure him that I wasn't doing something incredibly stupid. Um, and at the end, he goes, you know what? He goes, you made your case. He said, I totally see what's going on. Totally understand the basis of the decision. Really admire the decision, given the fact that you could have just kept your mouth shut and nobody would have ever known, right? So he said, I'll tell you what. He goes, I'm going to do a deal with you, which I thought was actually, this was super cool. He goes, I'm going to take your 10 million. But if the world changes and you come to me and say, hey, this is what's going on. And this is the, you know, the costs of, of getting past these headwinds have risen considerably. He said, trust me when I tell you, you will have no problem getting all or part of that money back. And, uh, and I think that, that what I really learned there, he's also on our board now at proof, but I really, what I really learned there was when you take, rational, defensible action that's not that's not selfish. You win big time. You build big structures of confidence and trust with people seemingly overnight. That then when you get in a jam you're going to be really glad that you had those. So 
there's just so many reasons why there's a phrase more philosophically about the examined life, right? Uh, And that we all need to really spend the time and examine our lives in detail, right? And get rid of stuff that probably shouldn't be there and take on maybe some stuff that should be there. Um, Analytics is, is subjecting your business to an examined life approach, right? And, and uh, I think that not only is that like kind of like good in just a general sense, but given the circumstances in the world today, given where business leaders are today, it's a pretty much a done deal. And you kind of have, all of us have a choice to make, right? We're either going to really truly get behind it and not just talk the talk, but walk it out. Or we are going to be dinosaurs in short order. That's just a, I think, a, an absolute statement of truth. I think it's an awesome place to <coughs> wrap up, actually. I mean, you've we've talked about the mindsets, the core things that CMOs and really business leaders need to be concerned about when it comes to marketing impact it's the time lag and the opportunity cost and you have to address that through business cases that gets us into uh skill sets which is really know how to make a business case know how to build a forecast uh, learn managerial finance at least at a cursory level to be able to talk the talk and understand conceptually uh, data concepts yeah. Of yeah, well, let me let me just also to a sense pretty straightforward. Right? I mean, it's I think so. Yes, please. There are a lot of CMOS in particular who have figured out how to throw around a lot of the lingo, but if you kind of peel back the onion a little bit, there's nothing there, right? they've never done any of what they kind of imply that they've been doing. Right. And so what you need to know is that everybody around you can tell. Like they may not be able to tell the first day or the second day, but sooner or later, they will figure it out that you're a talker, that you talk a lot about business terms and data terms and, you know, AI and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But when they say, Hey, show me what it is that you're actually doing. And they constantly get kind of like an excuse, like, Oh, I'm so busy right now, but can we, can we talk in a couple of weeks or three weeks or two months or whatever? Right, and you and you, you keep on kind of playing that game with them. It's going to come super obvious, and then what usually happens is that they are in a meeting. This is even like a CEO, right? CEO will be in a meeting with somebody else, maybe a direct report to you, maybe just a peer to you, a close peer, and he'll make 
some sort of attempt to ask that person something about it. And if that person doesn't know anything about what it is that you kind of have been emoting for months, you're blown. You're like totally blown. The, the other way that I see this happen, and it unfortunately happens all the time, and it happens on LinkedIn, okay, is that people will throw around business terms incorrectly. And then when they're called on it, they invariably will say, well, but that's just the way that I see it. That's my view of this word. And then what always happens, okay, is somebody will say, Somebody cloaked in real authority will say, no, see, that's not the way that works. You know, a balance sheet means something. It is, there's not several definitions of balance sheet. You don't get to decide how, what you're going to call a balance sheet, right? That's not the way this works. So there's a, there's a lot of people who have been trying to kind of have it both ways that are kind of in this, they're, they're finding the walls kind of closing in on them a little bit, but you know, I mean, and they're either, they're either going to make the hop and keep making the hops necessary to stay current or they will be shut out. I mean, that's really what it is. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And it's it's this um, fake it till you make it attitude. I was just exchanging some comments on, on LinkedIn of all places with somebody the other day. And it's it's just that entire thing is based on a, on a lie and it breeds distrust. And at some point you will get figured out, like you said. That's right. It's possible you won't. 100%. So, well... Mark, I really appreciate your time. We went well over our usual uh, our time limit, so I, re I really do appreciate you sticking around and providing all the insight. I think there's amazing uh, and hard truths in here for a lot of marketers that people really need to look inside themselves and say, okay, am I, am I going to move in this direction or not? Um, and one last thing I'll, I'll mention that really I think hit the mark is you said earlier on in the conversation of you know a lot of marketers – kind of get into marketing because they didn't like high school math kind of deal. And it, I know you partially said it in jest, but it, it's also partially true. And it really does actually make, uh, that's exactly how initially I got into it, to be honest. It was, I, you know, I took calculus in high school. I didn't like it. I took a, you know, physics in high school, didn't like it, you know, and heck I took statistics in college, didn't like that either. And this was sort of my, I thought my way out, but then what I really realized once I get into it is, well, no, actually, this is all the stuff that matters, and now I enjoy it. So it's, you know, I, I took the leap a long time ago where a lot of people, I think, you're right, are continuing to fight it because they they don't like it, or they're, and then they're, they become scared of it. Yeah, you know, it, it, so I will say this, though. It has made me, uh, everything else aside for a second, it has made me a better person. You know, um, I think that when you're a type A, very successful leader, 
unless you just happen to be exceptionally grounded, um, you kind of start to believe that while, yes, I have a great team and they do a lot and all this kind of stuff, that this is really about me. And when you run analytics on, on, on anything, right? What you find is that that's not usually the case. And it kind of comes across as a paradox because there's a lot of things that work together to produce a particular outcome. And so each one is in percentage terms is really small. But if you remove any one of them, it will have a disproportionately larger impact on the model. So what that means is, is that against the, the, the total group of people that you're working with, you are actually really a pretty small component. But if you were suddenly removed, everybody in that model, the outcome of the model, everything about it would be felt by that. There's sort of a, it's a giant paradox, right? Uh, and uh, to the extent that analytics and math reveal the truths of life, which they do, um, they, you know, the illustrates how much paradox there is in life. Yep. It's, uh, it's definitely, a, uh, definitely a paradox, like you said. Well, Mark, I feel like we're we're doing like the, the long <laughs> here. <laughs> I'm sure we can keep, we can keep talking for for another couple hours if we probably didn't even need to try much. But yeah. I want to be uh, I want to leave people with this. I think we've we've left off at a really good spot. Everybody, if you don't follow Mark on LinkedIn, you definitely should. Uh, you provide a ton of insight. I've definitely learned a lot from you over the last uh, whatever three four months that I've been following you and we've connected. So really appreciate your time and insight. Look forward to. Uh, by the way, we didn't even mention it. Mark, you're writing a book, so maybe I'll give you one last kind of uh, pitch here. Talk about the book. What's it going to be about? About, about a lot of what we've out. discussed, right? Um, uh, it's essentially about what it, what is the future of B two B going to look like? You know, um, particularly GTM, right? Um, what are the leaders going to have to look like? Uh, what are the operations going to have to look like? Uh, a lot of it is skewed uh, pretty heavily to what business leaders are saying. I think I probably have interviewed more Fortune 1000 CEOs and CFOs on this than anybody else that's currently alive. Uh, I don't know that for a fact, but but it seems kind of likely. Um, and so, you know, I think it's going to be a fairly definitive book. It's going to be a fairly short book. It's going to be, we're going to try and hold it to 150 pages. Um, and if you've ever tried to. Like everybody who reads business books yeah. is going to appreciate that because usually but, it's, you know, mostly fluff once you get past right. the first few chapters. But if you've ever tried to write a short book, you know that it's a lot harder than writing a long book. Right. Um, and so, you know, you also have to, you know, it's kind of one thing to say, you know, to your editor, oh, you know, here's 350 pages. 
let's get it down to, you get it down to 150. At which point, it's not even your book anymore because it's been effectively rewritten. Um, and so you can't really do that. You you have to write a hundred, maybe a hundred and sixty page book, knowing you're going to lose ten pages, right, or or something like that, right. And so it's it's a uh, yeah, it's quite an experience. But I I hope my whole goal is. I mean, there's so many books out there, particularly in the business world, that that are pretty thick, and they're meant to be monuments to the brilliance of their authors, right? Uh, that's not why this is being written. I, you know, it's, I want people to read it. Most people don't read most business books. You know, read this one. Uh, you know, call call me out on LinkedIn and say, hey. I loved your book for the following reasons. And I thought these specific parts of it were trash, you know, please explain yourself, you know, kind of thing. Um, I'm totally up for that. You know, I don't have a special revelation on any of this except my own experience and the conversations I've been having with all these business leaders. Do you have any idea when the book's coming out? Um, mid spring. Awesome. Well, I know I'll be on the lookout. Uh, everyone else, highly recommend it as well. Be on the lookout for when it's ready. And Mark, thank you very much again for your time. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Master Marketer Show. We'll be back next week with more B2B marketing success stories. Visit our website, www.proofpoint.marketing, for the full episode library complete with show notes, guides, templates, and more. Make sure to follow Proofpoint Marketing on LinkedIn and YouTube so you never miss an episode. Listen every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.